This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. We also host the annual Wake Up Festival, a five-day experience of transformation, held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. You can also join our free direct access membership program and read transcripts of all of the Insights at the Edge podcasts and search our collection of podcasts with now more than 100 episodes available. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Reginald A. Ray. Reggie brings us four decades of study and intensive meditation practice within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, as well as a special gift for applying ancient wisdom to the unique problems, inspirations, and spiritual imperatives of modern people. He is the co-founder and spiritual director of Dharma Ocean, a nonprofit educational organization dedicated to the practice, study, and preservation of the teachings of Reggie's teacher, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and the practicing lineage he embodied. With Sounds True, Reggie has written a book entitled Touching Enlightenment and a two-volume audio learning series called Your Breathing Body, Beginning and Advanced Practices for Physical, Emotional, and Spiritual Fulfillment. Reggie has also just released quite a historical audio learning series. It's called Mahamudra for the Modern World, and it's a program in which Reggie offers an unprecedented audio training course on the pinnacle teachings of Tibetan Buddhism. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Reggie and I spoke about how glimpsing the awakened state fits in with the Mahamudra training. We also talked about the transmission of the awakened state through digital means. We talked about how in the Mahamudra there are three teachers, a human teacher, life itself as a teacher, and the natural state as our teacher. And finally, we talked about the paradox of the awakened state being something quite personal and impersonal at the same time. Here's my conversation with a truly gifted and pioneering meditation teacher, Reggie Ray. To begin this episode of Insights at the Edge, I want to start with a transparent moment, a confessional moment, if you will, which is to tell our listeners that Reggie Ray is actually someone that I have been studying closely with for 10 years. And in fact, Reggie, I think of you as a teacher in the capital T sense of the word in that I've taken vows to work closely with you and co-create with you within the lineage that we're both a part of. And I want to let our listeners know that right here at the beginning and that the teachings that we'll be talking about, the Mahamudra teachings of Tibetan Buddhism, are very dear to me. 
And so this is a wonderful opportunity for me to introduce our listeners to the Mahamudra. So there's my confession at the start. I don't know if you have anything you'd like to say here as we begin our conversation. Well, only that the the journey with you has been so interesting and so many ups and downs and leading to, to really, I think, the way it should always be within a spiritual lineage between a mentor and somebody who's in the process of studying and learning a very deep friendship and ultimately a friendship with open hearts and open minds and uh, no hierarchy at all, just eye-to-eye and heart-to-heart. And I very much appreciate that you've been willing to make this very radical and surprising journey with me. So here at the start, I want to bring our listeners up to speed on what we're talking about in terms of making what could be called the Mahamudra journey. I mean, I think many people think of Mahamudra as the most advanced teachings of Tibetan Buddhism, and that sounds really hard and unattainable, so I don't really need to know much more about it because it's something I'll never experience in my life. It's out there for those Tibetan Buddhists who are going to go through 12, 14, 19 different levels of this or that. So how would you introduce people to the Mahamudra journey? Well, I would say to begin with that Mahamudra, which means the transcendent symbol, uh, and that doesn't really communicate, so let me tell you what that is about. Mahamudra, a way of, another way of translating is to say that is the complete experience, the full experience of human life. Maha means complete or total, that there's nothing beyond it, and mudra means experience. So it's interesting that you're quite right that the Mahamudra is the most advanced teaching within Tibetan Buddhism, but at the same time, it's about something that is in all of us, all, all of us in our lives. And, you know, frankly, I believe in everything that we do, we are looking for the fullness of our own human experience and the tremendous depth and fulfillment that that can bring. And that's really what the Mahamudra is about. It's about delivering to people through a tradition their own life and their own freedom. So the Mahamudra journey, uh, you know, we could say it's the most advanced teaching. We could also say it's the earliest and the simplest teaching that the Buddha gave. But the way the tradition frames it is that The Buddha gave this very simple teaching about human life and human freedom and human fulfillment and human happiness, but it was so simple that within the Indian environment, nobody believed him and nobody believed that it was possible. And so, according to the tradition, he developed a lot of different avenues to this tremendous simplicity. But the interesting thing in our culture is that, you know, we're not an Asian culture. We're not an agrarian culture. We're a very sophisticated and, in a way, spiritually informed group of people, in particularly in Western culture at this point. And I believe that the Mahamudra teachings can be delivered in a much more spare, much more direct, and much more penetrating way than they've been presented in Asia. And other people 
both Tibetans and Western teachers would agree with me on that point. Now, do you feel there's any, quote-unquote, secrecy needed related to the Mahamudra teachings? Well, you know, because we're talking about the the gradual opening of our hearts and the gradual opening of our sensitivity and our subtlety in relation to our own lives, there you know, it's 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 an evolving process. It's not something that we get right in the beginning. And in a sense, the full depth of our own human person is a secret. So in that sense, there is secrecy, not in the sense that the, that people need to be uh, sort of kept out of the Mahamudra practices, but simply that it takes time to uncover the subtlety and the depth and, you know, the hiddenness of our own fullness as people. So that's the only way in which I would think the secrecy applies. Mm-hmm. Well, part of what's behind my question is here with Sounds True, you've created a 33-CD training course in the Mahamudra. And I don't think anything like this has ever been done. An audio training course, 40-plus hours of teachings and practices. And I think part of the reason it's never been done is that there's this idea that you need to work in an environment with a human teacher, that you need to have done certain preliminary practices first. And here you are, and you're just opening the gates wide and making it widely available through a series of recordings. Well, this is um, this is maybe... Uh something quite surprising, but in the Tibetan tradition, although there were many lineages in which the Mahamudra was not taught until way, way later, in the early Tibetan tradition, and I'm thinking of uh, uh, some early teachers of the Kagyu lineage and the Nyingma lineage also, where Mahamudra is called Dzogchen, you have these teachings being given to people um, outside the framework of the official uh, monastic tradition and the official tantric tradition, uh, people who are just ordinary lay people living in the world like us, like most of us. So it has been done, but simply because of the nature of Tibetan Buddhism, because it's so, it's such an ornate tradition and it's so ritually oriented, uh, that wasn't, it isn't really known in the West that it was done that way, but it was. And so what we're doing here really is going back to the earliest Tibetan tradition and even beyond that to India, where these teachings often were simply given by a teacher passing a practitioner on the road that that teacher maybe didn't even know and seeing that that practitioner had the capacity to for their mind to really open toward their own life. And those teachings were given in that environment outside of any official religious setting whatsoever. So in a sense, we're going back to the beginning of this tradition and what we're doing here. Okay. And I want to give listeners more sense of what we actually mean by the Mahamudra teachings. Because yes, you talked about how it's coming into the fullness of our life, the fullness of our experience, but that also can sound a little general. So to get a little bit more specific, within the practice of the Mahamudra, early on we begin with the introduction by the teacher to what's known as, quote-unquote, the awakened state or the natural state. So I want to know if you can talk about that. I mean, this idea of, quote-unquote, a state 
that we're being introduced to? Well, this brings up the whole question of what is enlightenment, because the awakened state is a very experiential term for nirvana, um, for the attainment of full realization, whatever you want to say. So, within the tantric tradition and, and the Vajrayana tradition of Tibet, which is where Mahamudra has been most often taught, each of us has as our basic nature an open and limitless field of freedom and awareness. And this is something that not only can be experienced, but has to be experienced in order for us to make a spiritual journey. We have to, there has to be some way for us to have a glimpse of this infinite depth of our own state of being. And the purpose of what's called pointing out in the Mahamudra tradition is for the teacher to use various techniques to open that state of mind. Now, you might say, why is that important? I mean, if this is our basic nature, why don't, why don't we all experience it and walk around and know it? Because normally, for probably all human beings in all cultures, the default state is an ego state. You know, in uh, neurobiology, we know that the default state of most people when they're not doing something or actively thinking about something is an, a running commentary about themselves and their own life and what's going on. It's, it's uh, Trunk Rinpoche, my root guru, called it subconscious gossip. That is like um, a foot layer of debris on top of the ocean of our state of being. And most of us think that who we are is just this incessant thinking and uh, ruminating and grinding away at our issues, obsessions, and so on. And we have no awareness at all of who we really are in the full sense. Because of that situation, the pointing out is given so that we can see directly that, wow, you know, oh my God, this is this huge, open, endless field at the basis of me. And it feels more me and more open and more joyful than I've ever felt. Once we have a glimpse of that so-called basic nature or that awakened state, because that is what enlightenment is, even though it closes up again, we know it's there, we know for sure. And that is hugely inspiring in terms of making the journey. I want to talk a little bit more about this word state as a noun, because people think of a state often as being something that is the same all the time, or it's like some geographic zone that you go to. And so I'm wondering if you can speak more about that experience, the awakened state, the natural state. Is it dynamic, changing, different all the time? How do I know that that's what I'm glimpsing when the pointing out experience is going on? Well, think of the the known universe and Let's say, just for the sake of argument, that space goes on forever. Let's just say that. And all these things happen within that space. And all these things are all the astrological, astronomical 
cosmological phenomena, stars and all the things that go on in relation to galaxies and so on. Well, the natural state or the awakened state is the space itself. But there's one difference between physical space and the awakened state, and that is that the space of the awakened state is alive and it's sentient. In other words, we can have a moment when the mind is absolutely open and we're not thinking about anything, and we feel the infinite expanse of our own awareness, and we're completely there. We're not spaced out at all. We're totally there. That's the awakened state. And we can talk about what happens out of that state and within that state, and that's an important conversation. But the state itself, it's just the underlying condition of experience. There could be no experience if there weren't that openness and vastness of mind. Now, we can say that theoretically, but it's a completely different issue to actually touch that ourselves and see it for ourselves. Many people who first experience that state, and perhaps many of your listeners have, when they first see it, they, their minds are literally blown to smithereens. They can't, they can't believe it because they never knew there was so much to their own human being. Now, how would you say that the glimpsing of this state fits into the Mahamudra training? How would you frame that? Well, it's often said that there are three stages in the Mahamudra training. The first stage is that we need to realize that the awakened state is real, and it can be experienced, and it can be experienced by me. I can experience it because it's actually within me. So that's step number one, and that's what pointing out delivers. Once you have that certainty, one of the things that comes along with it is an incredible appetite to go there, to be there. And why? Because the quality of that uh, infinite depth of our own being is so there's such a sense of liberation, there's such a sense of releasing all of our limitations and all of our shackles. So there's a huge sense of freedom that is, it's so energizing and so, it's such a fundamental relief. And then also the experience of that freedom brings with it a a kind of confidence in life that we realize that because who we are really is infinite, and does it, you can see when you experience this part of yourself that it never came into being in a certain moment, and it's never going to die. It get, it frees you not only within yourself, but also frees you to live. Whatever life you want to live, it frees you to live that life, and that brings with it enormous joy. So. It's like you have all the inspiration you need. You don't need to read a lot of books. You don't need to talk to a lot of people. You don't need to hear a lot of teachings. Once you you experience that for yourself, you have everything you need in terms of motivation and inspiration um, to make this journey. And then the second step is through your practice, through your Mahamudra practice, which we, you know, that's what this whole uh, 33 CD program is about, is showing people the practices. Through them, you deepen your relationship to that depth of your own nature so that in the beginning, you can rest in it 
for a few seconds and then for a few minutes. And eventually, you get to the point where you rest there all the time. And it's always your, uh, it's your default. Instead of thinking mind being your default, the awakened state is your default. And then you can live your life in a completely different way, in a way that is much more consistent with who you want to be. And your uh, ability to experience your life in a very open and courageous and brave way is just given to you. It's not something you have to conquer. So that's stage number two, and that's the whole path of Mahamudra, and that's really what we're looking at in the program. And then the fruition of Mahamudra is where the you know the sense of having to withdraw from our uh, awakened state, from our vastness, is just uh, it kind of dissolves, and you live there all the time. And that's an ever receding horizon. You know the journey. Again, uh, the Tibetan teachers will say the journey never ends. But uh, you get to the point where you really begin to see it unfolding in your own state of being. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, at a certain point, life becomes uh, very joyful. And even the prospect of death isn't regarded as a shadow in your life. You know, I want to talk a little bit more about this path component, the second component that you're highlighting here. Because I think a lot of people in the contemporary spiritual world might say, I listened or went to this program with so-and-so non-dual teacher, and I think I had a taste of this vastness. And now I have the experience in my life of something that could be called the I got it, I lost it phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Like, I got it, I'm there, I'm open, I'm not in my thinking mind, and then I lost it, I'm stuck, and that this goes on and on, this back and forth for decade upon decade upon decade. And at the end, 20, 30, 40 years later, I'm not sure how much transformation happened in my life. I suffered a lot of, I got it, I lost it, I got it, I lost it, I got it, I lost it. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me you're offering something different here when you talk about the path, and that many people seem what I would call kind of path-averse in the contemporary spiritual scene, meaning I just want to have the goal now. I don't necessarily want to follow, quote-unquote, a path. And I'm curious what you think about that. Well, I think it's a, it's a very uh, confusing conversation now that's happening, in particularly in the Western world, but now really it's happening everywhere, where you'll have very gifted teachers say that um, the goal is beyond every path, the goal, you know, the awakened state is beyond every practice, that if you're uh, doing any kind of practice, you're, you're hung up, and that's not it, and... While that's true, you know, the ultimate attainment is to be able to rest in the state of, uh, you could say, non-concept or the non-egoic state or the awakened state. You know, the goal is to rest there all the time. When you rest there, then practice really is irrelevant. While that's true, for most people, as you're indicating, that's not how it is. For this gifted elite uh, of people who feel that, that they've transcend, completely transcended the human condition, it may be true, but it certainly isn't true for the rest of us. And the Mahamudra, one of the things that I have found very appealing about the Tibetan tradition and the Vajrayana, and particularly the Mahamudra within the Tibetan Buddhist thing, is that it's very practical, it's very down-to-earth, and it is willing to accept 
our actual experience and our actual hang-ups and our actual humanity and willing to dig into that and work with it and lo and behold show us that it can be transformed. There's a, a very famous Tibetan teacher named Milarepa who lived in the 11th century and 12th century and he he basically uh, is regarded as having fully achieved the Mahamudra and at the end of his life, some of his students said, well, you were special. You know, you achieved the Mahamudra because you're this very special being from the day of your birth. And he said, actually, you've got it backwards. The reason that I have attained the realization that I have is because I was not only exactly like you, but I was actually in worse shape than you are. I had more obstacles and what we would say in our culture, more um, psychological disability and even mental illness when I started than anybody that I know. And it was through applying these amazing teachings to my dysfunction that actually enabled me to become the person I am today and to achieve the happiness and the realization that I have. This was a, a person who lived in a cold, dank cave his whole life, and he never had quite enough food as those yogis did in those days, and it was it was very uncomfortable. And he said many, many times during his life, I'm the happiest person on the planet. So I think, you know, the, the issue of a path, you know, on the one hand, 99.999% of all of us need a path because we can't simply rest in a natural state, and we should admit it. And the second thing is, the deeper the path, the higher the realization. And that's really interesting. If you're born enlightened, you're not going to go anywhere and nothing much is going to happen. Or if you attain enlightenment and then that's it. But the Vajrayana teaches that the deeper the path, the more negative material, the more confusion, the more pain, the more suffering we have to work with, the brighter and the bigger and the vaster and the warmer the realization we're eventually going to attain. So the Mahamudra is um, very, uh, it's very grounded, it's very earthy, and it's very based on who we actually are, not just in Tibet, but in the modern world as humans and what we actually have to work with. Okay, and once again, to introduce to new people what this path is then, what do you think are its most important features? Well, I would say that there there really are three major stages, and, and I'll put it this way because that's how we're doing it on this program. Um, the first stage, and, and by the way, all of these stages, you could call them maybe not even stages, but dimensions of practice, and they continue through the whole tradition. The first dimension is assessing our actual human situation, assessing, for example, that we have a certain karmic situation and, and being realistic about it. You know, I'm male, I'm female, I'm gay, I'm straight, I'm wealthy, I'm poor, I have good health, I have poor health. It's, it's being willing to face, to look in the mirror and really accept who we are as the basis of the journey, including all of our family history and our traumas and so on, and to to realize that that is the basis of the path, that kind of realism and that kind of really courage to take who we are as the ground. And then the second part, I think, is the practice of mindfulness. We hear a, a great deal 
in our world today about uh, mindfulness practice uh, and especially mindfulness-based stress reduction of John Kabat-Zinn, which is uh, becoming a very, very, very popular, very widely used technique to to relieve suffering. Um, that is that kind of practice is actually the first step on the Mahamudra journey uh, in terms of actual practice. So we have the preliminary, and then we have number two is the first practice stage, and then we have the second practice stage. So. Mindfulness practice in the Mahamudra tradition means learning to become really present to our state of being. Most of us are distracted most of the time, and through working with mindfulness techniques, we learn how to pay attention to our breath, to our body, to our emotions. It's paying attention and learning to experience things more and more directly rather than through the filter of what we think about things. So I really want to emphasize that. Most of us do not have direct experience of life. We don't even know what it is. Most of us can only experience life through what we think about life. Mindfulness practice, and you read about this in all the mindfulness books, by teaching a technique such as paying attention to the breath at the tip of the nostrils or paying attention to the feeling of the body as it breathes in and out, or, you know, dozens of other techniques, mindfulness practice teaches us to feel our human existence and to be present to it. And we can talk a little bit, if you like, about how that works. So mindfulness is step number one in terms of the actual practice. And then step number two, and this is something that is not taught in the mindfulness movement in the West, and that is... uh, I think it's okay, but I will often say mindfulness is only half of the story. What about the other half? The other half of the story is what's called awareness practice. And in that practice, we begin to look into the life that mindfulness helps us to begin to discover. We look into the nature of our mind. We look into the nature of our body. We look into the nature of our emotions. And in the Mahamudra tradition, those are considered gates, they're called gates to eternity. Because what we discover when we start looking into our experience and opening ourselves nakedly to our own human life is that the significance, the depth, the meaningfulness, the power of our life is infinitely greater than what we thought. So one thing is to be present, but number two, is to open to a much deeper understanding and experience of our human life. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. Sounds True hosts an annual wake-up festival a five-day experience of transformation held in August of each year in the beautiful Rocky Mountains. This is a gathering of spiritual teachers, artists, poets, and anyone interested in the many faces of awakening. For more information about the Wake Up Festival, please visit soundstrue.com forward slash wake up. And now back to Insights at the Edge. 
Now, I want to go back to this idea that the awakened state is something that can be transmitted as part of Mahamudra training, and that this happens actually even before the mindfulness training, that this transmission, ground Mahamudra transmission, happens right at the beginning of the training. Can you speak to that just for a moment? I can. Um, in the normal Tibetan tradition, uh, that that pointing out instruction is usually deferred, and sometimes it's deferred a long time. You can you can practice ten you know ten years before that pointing out instruction is given or that pointing out experience. M- my teacher Chogyam Trungpa uh, had a, an unusual style, which was he had so much confidence in the sanity of us Westerners that he routinely would do pointing out instruction in all kinds of situations from day one. And in other words, you go in to meet the man, you sit down, you're having an interview, and all of a sudden you find yourself floating in eternity. And meantime, he's sitting there, you're sitting there, the sun is shining, there's a breeze, the curtains are ruffling, and your mind goes on forever. And you look around the room and the beauty of the sunlight falling on the floor and the feeling of the cool breeze on your face, it's almost like you woke up from a dream. And he opened that door for us right at the beginning. And I wouldn't be doing it if he hadn't done it. But what he felt was that all of the discussion about Western people are materialistic and they're not spiritually capable, he regarded that as just a lot, a lot of uh, of uh, Asian rhetoric, and he felt that wasn't true. And he actually felt that we, as as modern people and Western people, but now modern people really, because we have to talk globally, we actually are better placed to realize the full depth of this tradition than most people in Asia. And that was shocking information and still is. And that we're better positioned, why is that? We're better positioned because we're not tied into conservative hierarchical cultures. Um, you know, if you know, my training is in history of religions. I'm a, a, my PhD is in the study, comparative study of religion. And um, if anybody out there knows a lot about Asian culture, one thing you, you know is that they're very, very conservative. And the, there's a real hierarchy between the elite male practitioners of a culture and all women and almost everybody else, including all lay people. And it's not 100% like that, but it, but that's the, that's the overwhelming mainstream of Asian cultures. When you live in a culture like that, you simply... You, you know, you don't think you wouldn't. It wouldn't occur to you that you could attain something like the Mahamudra. That you, and if you went to a teacher, they probably wouldn't teach it to you because they wouldn't think you could do it either. And Trungpa came into Western culture in the mid '60s to England and then to the United States in 1970. And his assessment was that because our culture was so chaotic, I mean, in a way, it's not good. You know, there's a lot of a lot of suffering that Asians don't have. But in another way, he felt we were much, much more potentially more open to spiritual teachings than people in Asia. And he actually said the number of people in Tibet, for example, who were genuine practitioners was a teeny minority, teeny. 
and genuine means people who really wanted to make the full journey. And that um, contrary to what we all thought in the 70s, that um, it wasn't like that in Tibet. And he, but he found in the West the number of people who wanted to do it was very, very much greater and he thought would grow. And I think we're seeing that now. I think we're seeing now many, many people in the Western world and the rest of the world who want to not simply follow a nice conventional, uh, traditional religious path, but they actually want to wake up and they want to attain the full possibilities of their human life before they die. Okay. So... Ground Mahamudra transmission, the transmission of this awakened state. I mean, something very radical happened, Reggie, mm-hmm. in the production of this 33-CD series, Mahamudra for the Modern World, which is you said, okay, let's do it. Let's give Ground Mahamudra transmission on a recording and put it out as part of this training course. It's part of the training. It needs to be part of the 33 CDs. We can do it right here as a recording. And I thought to myself, wow, I don't think this has probably ever been done before. This is a real historic moment in my Sounds True life. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. How can a recording as a transmission of the awakened state work? I'm not sitting with the teacher. I'm not in their physical presence. I'm listening to a recording. Well, you know, that's a great question. Um, I have to tell you that when I first started teaching in a not live way, which was actually in Naropa University, I did some online courses, I was hugely skeptical that the courses that I taught, which were very much about practice and change and transformation and realization, that they would have any impact at all. And what I found out was that that was absolutely not true. And some of my closest students today, um, their lives were opened up not by meeting me personally, but by uh, over the Internet and through uh, recordings. And I've been thinking about that. That was maybe 15 years ago, and I've been thinking about it a lot. And what I think is that, and this is going to sound very strange, but this is my experience, and I, and, and, and I stand by it because I was forced to come to this conclusion. It's not something I started with, is that, in a sense, the, uh, there's a level of communication that goes on in the universe that is not dependent on the clock. And I think a lot of us know this, that um, we can experience something very freshly today that happened 20 years ago, or sometimes we experience things right now that are not going to happen in the same way for another five years. Many, many people, you know, have these experiences. We also have the interesting experience of that when you, you know, recording is different from video, and, you know, we know this, you know, I mean, a lot of people know this in this culture, but the human voice, um, it conveys a tremendous range of experience, and I actually believe that the human voice, when I talk, I'm conveying the fullness of my own experience. And for somehow that that can be recorded, and even though when we hear a voice, we may be only consciously aware of two or three percent of the totality of what's coming through, our body and our psyche registers the other ninety-seven or ninety-eight percent. 
So this is, you know, I'm kind of talking around it, but I, uh, you know, this is not an opinion. It's something that I found over and over. Recordings can communicate the living moment. And even though the moment of my giving pointing out on the recording, and also, you know, we worked with pointing out for the rest of the program, as, as you know, and the moment when the person listens to it are not two moments they're the same moment experientially and i will uh, i will take my refuge in quantum mechanics where uh, we know now that reality is not local and reality is not temporally pinned down that two moments very diverse in time can share the same reality i mean we know this from quantum mechanics and i think it's something that actually applies throughout the whole cosmos and it certainly applies in the teaching situation that we've been doing well, of course, I love hearing this. It makes me ridiculously happy as somebody who's put most of their life energy into recordings mm-hmm. that actual transmission of realization could be occurring depending on the state of being of the transmitter. It could be occurring, and in my experience, it has occurred. It has occurred even before we did the program. Um, I've had experiences of that nature when we did Your Breathing Body, which was the 20-CD series a few years ago, there's some moments in there, I didn't call it pointing out, but there's some moments in there where there's a huge openness in the studio. You and I were here. We felt it. It was, um, you know, you told me one day you got sick. You know, you got sick from the energy that was here. And lo and behold, two or three or four years later, I got uh, an email from uh, somebody in mainland China who experienced exactly the same thing. And, you know, the opening, the vastness of mind, and then feeling like we're going to throw up. Throw up because of the uh, the input of the energy and the openness. And, you know, at that point, I just gave it up. I mean, I tend to be a very logical person, but I just gave it up because, okay, fine. <laughs> what I thought was just not right. And, you know, the worst thing I could possibly do is, is, is distrust what actually was going on. Mm-hmm. So there's a precedent for it. Now, you make a comment in the Mahamudra series that, there are actually three different Mahamudra teachers. There's the human teacher, and we've yeah. been talking some about that, yeah. but that life itself, our experience itself, is also the teacher, yeah. and that the natural state can be a teacher for yeah. us. Yeah. So I wanted to talk about these two other kinds of teachers sure. for a moment. Yeah. And so especially I want to talk about how experience, our experience in life, can be a teacher. Because, you know, obviously there are people who have illnesses or go through divorce or career change, and they say, oh my God, I learned so much. I'm so changed by it. My life is my teacher. But there are plenty of other people who go through experiences in life and just become bitter or sour. They're not particularly changed by their experience. Yeah. yeah. So how do we relate to life in an effective way as our teacher? Well, one one question is, when you meet somebody who has uh, been in a very bad accident or they've been ill and it has changed their life, or, you know, it often happens too when, it, when a, a long, long, long-term relationship collapses, what is it about those experiences that make them so impactful? And And what I think is that and it is interesting. Some people can go through those things and nothing happens. So that's interesting. But when something does happen and somebody does fundamentally change, what is it about those experiences? Those experiences are, are they cut through our version of reality, our wishful thinking. 
and our fundamental overall sense of being in control of our lives. And that is what changes people. When, when we are able or we're forced to relate to experience as being an independent entity in our life, as, as arriving with information that we can't hold off, we change. Now, for most people, that only happens in these huge, dramatic moments. But through the Mahamudra practice, as we deepen the experience and the happiness of the vast field, the the ocean of awareness that lies at the basis of who we are, as we deepen our relationship with that, as we get to know it better, as we learn how to kind of hang out there, um, when we are feeling very constricted and shut down and disconnected, um, learning how to open back into that space and really heal ourselves on the spot, the more we learn that, the more open we become as people, and the more we begin to realize that when we experience our lives from that depth and from that field of openness, then pretty much everything that happens to us arrives with that message of wake up, of a message of meaningfulness or significance or the the message of a deep connectedness with someone else. Strangely enough, when we truly open our minds to our own experience, the experience itself becomes a kind of fulfillment moment by moment. And in that sense, the experience comes like the human teacher who's bringing you your life. We really feel that our own human experience is bringing us life in each situation, in each emotion, in each person that we meet. And the natural state itself as a teacher, how do you see that? I would say the natural state as a teacher in the sense of reminding us that that there is no solid sense of self, that there is no me that endures from moment to moment. Because when you, you know, we are very intoxicated by our own personal idea of who we are, and it's so interesting for us to experience our full depth, experience the natural state, the awakened state, and to realize that in those moments there is no sense of self, there is no me looking at me and commenting on me. There's just unconditional openness. And it, it, it kind of returns us to our fundamental human default state of freedom. And so it's a teacher in that sense. And, you know, particularly, not to make this sound too, uh, you know, to bring this back to the earth a little bit, I think often after you've been practicing the Mahamudra for a while, when you get locked up, something happens to jar you loose and to open you to that depth. And it's almost as if, at that point, the awakened state itself is intervening in our experience when we begin to feel we're we're suddenly very narcissistic, we're suddenly very self-absorbed, we're not seeing the situation, we're totally focused on ourselves. we're we're totally wrapped up in our paranoia, and then all of a sudden there's this sudden opening into the awakened state. And that sudden opening happens by itself. It's based on practice, of course, you know, we're making the journey, we're doing our daily practice, but it happens by itself. And 
that experience is like so many experiences I had with Trump Rinpoche when I was in a shutdown state of mind and he would do something and it would just bust open into freedom, into eternity. Now you underscore this paradox in the Mahamudra training that the awakened state is both impersonal and completely personal at the same time. And I'm wondering if you can explain that paradox. How is it impersonal and personal? Well, I would have to, um, to do that, I'd have to explain the three, uh, I would say, three aspects of Mahamudra experience. Um, and we've kind of been talking around it already, but the first one is the openness itself of the fundamental being, the openness of awareness. And when we uh, begin to experience that openness of awareness and we make a relationship with it, we begin to notice that that openness has a certain kind of energy to it. And that energy is, uh, it's hard to explain. I mean, we go through it in the programs, but I'm going to try to explain it a little bit. That openness is giving birth, you could say. It's giving birth to energy. It's giving birth to inspiration. It's giving birth, in other words, the openness of the awakened state is not a static thing. It's dynamic. It's always giving rise to things. And um, what it gives rise to is this energetic dimension. And that um, that energetic dimension appears in our life as our human experience. It's, it's the actual experience of love or the actual experience of fear or the actual experience of some kind of inspiration or the actual experience of the beauty of another person's face. And the the interesting thing is sometimes in spiritual traditions people think that experience is ego and the openness is non-ego. It's not like that. The openness itself gives birth to experience. The experience, before we overlay it with ego and before we start thinking about it, the experience itself is also egoless. There's no ego in it. And that, our human experience, when we see it in an absolutely naked, spare, stripped-down way, it's incredibly personal because we are the only one having that experience. And yet, it's impersonal in the sense that it's not being driven by our ego in any shape, way, or form, or even influenced by it. And it is a paradox. It's a paradox to be alive, to experience the openness of life, to experience the the energy and the beauty and the wonder of life, and to realize that our ego has nothing to do with it. And it's, uh, it's incredibly liberating. It's also scary because it means we don't really have control at that moment. I'm with you. <laughs> now, there's another paradox about this training series that I want to bring forward. And this is something I don't think you and I have talked about directly, and it's not something that you state in the recording, but Mm -hmm. it's something I've observed, which Mm -hmm. is part of the premise of this series, Mahamudra for the Modern World, is that this practice is a wonderful fit for our contemporary world. And you list all the reasons that that's true, that it fits our hunger for direct experience, that we can learn it directly ourselves in our body, working with our own experience, etc. But, you know, 
just to articulate the training takes 40-some-odd hours, and then to do this practice in retreat in a dedicated way takes weeks and weeks a year, and does a practice that requires so much time and energy, is it really a good fit for our modern world? Most people feel they don't have the time for this kind of thing. What would be a good fit for my life, says this person, is something that I can do, you know, in the car while I'm driving into work or on the subway. Uh, Not something that I'm going to, you know, mark out 40 hours just to learn the basic practice. And so what's the question? The question is, how is it that the Mahamudra approach is a good fit for the modern world when most people in the modern world don't feel they have the time for something like this? Well, first of all, I would question, um, I guess I have a couple questions. One is, do people actually in the modern world want to work on themselves? You know, do they want to, is this, do they want this to be part of what they do in life is to learn more about who they are and what life is? Is that of interest to anybody? And I would say in the 50s and, and, you know, before, the answer might be no. In other words, people, I think, you know, post-war people felt they just wanted to have a normal life, they wanted to be happy, and they thought it was doable. In the 60s, the whole thing broke down, and there was a, a, a group of people, you know, young people at that time, who felt that that wasn't good enough and that there there was something in them that wanted more than simply to have the American dream. And But that has remained a minority, you know, for decades. But what I'm seeing now is that more and more more and more of us are looking at the world and, you know, we're seeing a downward trend. And there's a tremendous sense of uncertainty about what's going to happen um, globally and in terms of our own, you know, cultures around the world. And I don't think any of us would bet our last dollar that in 10 years things aren't going to be totally different and maybe much more difficult. I don't. I think there are very few people who think in 10 years things are really going to be great. Well, you know, when that happens to you, then you start wondering, well, what is my life for? And, you know, if there's been a denial about uh, death and mortality in American culture, I think it's, it's, it's slipping away because it's all around us. So I think today there's much more motivation to work on oneself and to try to 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 make the most of one's life in terms of discovering the meaning of life, in terms of experiencing the beauty of the world, in terms of um, having significant relationships, in terms of growing psychologically. And then the question is, where does the Mahamudra fit into that situation? You know, if people do have more inspiration now and are are more and more interested in the human journey as a spiritual thing. The interesting thing about the Mahamudra first is that almost anything you do is going to change you. And, you know, I don't I don't any longer feel, you know, which I did feel for a long time, but I don't feel now that the proof is going to be, you know, the, the validity of this tradition is going to be if there are millions of people who become fully enlightened. I think the more I see about Tibetan culture, the more I realize it didn't happen there. And also, the more I see about human life in general, I realize the important point is that there's a journey that you're making and that you're learning, you're growing, 
and your sense of life is deepening. And so the Mahamudra really, um, it addresses that exact yearning, that longing. And if you do five minutes of Mahamudra practice, you're going to have be five minutes closer to, your, to being who you are and to, and, and to taking joy in your life. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is, I think, you know, when you begin doing these practices, uh, let's say you do, you know, there's a, I think the, a lot of the meditation is like 30 minutes or 40 minutes. Let's say you do, you know, a few times a week you do these guided meditations. You're working way slowly through the through the program. At a certain point, you start to realize that on the days when you do the guided meditation, your day is more productive and more happy and more open and more connected. And then you decide, well, I think it's a coincidence. So then you don't do it for two or three days, and you don't feel that. And then you do the practice again, and you feel it again. And so that, you know, to me, the motivation isn't, uh, you know, to, to carry through the practices doesn't really have to come from somebody's willpower. It simply comes from the power of your own observation. When you see, it's like if you don't have breakfast and you don't have lunch, you know by late afternoon you're not going to be feeling that good. On the other hand, if you're eating, you feel better, and it's exactly that way with these practices. So at a certain point, um, the Mahamudra really becomes nourishment for your soul and enables you to begin to live your life in a different way. I think once that realization happens, then people are not so interested in the goal and accumulating thousands of hours of practice. They're interested in this relationship, in this job, in this vacation, and really, you know, um, deriving the full depth of happiness and and openness that they're looking for. Okay, there's just two more things I want to talk with you about. So the first is that you make a strong statement in the program that you don't believe Tibetan Buddhism can quote-unquote be replanted in the West, that it's not like a tree that we can take and plant in different soil. Mm -hmm. So if Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche didn't replant Tibetan Buddhism, and if you're not quote-unquote replanting it through releasing a series of teachings like this, Mahamudra for the Modern World, what are you both doing? Well, the Chogyam Trungpa's genius was that he understood the difference between Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan techniques and Tibetan culture on the one hand and human spirituality on the other. And he didn't see them as the same thing. He, he felt that all people have a certain capacity that we're talking about here to experience a wholeness and a fullness of human life that Buddhism calls enlightenment. You can call it the awakened state, whatever you want to. And he saw Tibetan Buddhism as valuable only insofar as it gave access to that experience. Otherwise, it's, it, it's, it's worthless, you know, from his point of view. If it doesn't actually wake people up and doesn't bring them happiness and fulfillment, it's, it's, it, it loses its value. And so the techniques and the social structures, the hierarchy, the patriarchies, the monastic institutions, um, the, you know, dare I say, I, I don't want to offend anybody, but even the, the Tilku tradition in Tibet of incarnate lamas, this whole uh, apparatus um, 
it isn't working in the West. And um, by not working, what I mean is it's not that we're not learning a tremendous amount from the tradition, but it's not being replanted. And the young Tibetan teachers are not trying to simply reproduce the Tibetan thing over here. The the more traditional teachers um, didn't really know any other way to do it, but the younger ones aren't. And so in that sense, they're following the footsteps of Chogim Trungpa. And my, you know, my, what I'm doing is I am extracting from the tradition really the, the whole path of practice and leaving aside a lot of the values and a lot of the more ornate complicated ritual forms that really don't work for Western people. And I'm teaching, you know, the the inner path, the the what we call the Mahamudra path in the Western world because that is uh that doesn't have all of the apparatus and all of the Asian values and all of the Asian forms. It's it's a much simpler and more direct tradition, and it also happens to be the highest. So my, you know, what I'm doing and what he did was not transplanting something, but using that tradition so that people can see the depth of their own experience and the openness of their own fundamental being and the uh, sacredness of their own human life in the Western world or the modern world and, you know, in this day and age. And I just want to end on this final note, Reggie, which is I'm imagining someone who's been listening to our conversation and might be having the question, I wonder if I've glimpsed the awakened state or not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I've glimpsed my idea of the awakened state or really tasted that experience. How would you help them know what the litmus test is for that? The awakened state on one day, and the, let's put it this way, the gate to the awakened state on one day and the gate, the awakened state on the next day aren't going to be the same. There's no way, if you form an idea that you have experienced the awakened state, then you have lost connection with the depth of your own being. The way to experience the awakened state is to release the necessity to know for certain where you're at and who you are and what you've accomplished. That's the gate to the awakened state. And that that fundamental, you can look at it as uncertainty and you can also look at it as the radical openness of human awareness that we do not, uh, we're never going to be able to come to conclusions about anything in life. And, you know, I know for many listeners this is uh, going to seem uh, like a puzzling statement. But the minute you know who your partner is, you think you know, you've got a serious problem on your hands. The minute you think you know what uh, love is or what anything is, because at that moment you're not, uh, you're not open anymore. You, you've come to some conclusion. So the awakened state, there are experiences of tremendous freedom and openness, and there's no denying it, but we don't need to pin down the fact of where it is and what it is and how it fits into everything. And the further we go, the more depth we find in this uh, practice around the awakened state, and the more of a journey unfolds from it. So can you 
let go of the natural egoic tendency to pin everything down and to try to solidify everything because the more you do so, the more you're going to be able to live in the awakened state. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so much for the conversation. My pleasure. I've been speaking with Reggie Ray, and he has recorded with Sounds True a new 33-CD training course, Mahamudra for the Modern World, and unprecedented training course in the pinnacle teachings of Tibetan Buddhism. Reggie's also the author of a book published by Sounds True called Touching Enlightenment, Finding Realization in the Body, as well as a two-volume series called Your Breathing Body, Beginning Practices for Physical, Emotional, and Spiritual Fulfillment. That's volume one. And then volume two consists of advanced practices. And Reggie will also be with us as a presenter at Sounds True's inaugural Wake Up Festival, which is happening August 22nd through the 26th in Estes Park, Colorado. And I feel so pleased about that, that you were willing to join us for the festival. It's really a treat, and it'll be wonderful to introduce you personally to everybody in the audience. It's something I'm really looking forward to. I am too. Soundstrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening. <laughs>